Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's call. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's full risk. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. Please note this call is being recorded. I will be standing by should you need any assistance. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Jim Washer. Please go ahead. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, The Majors in Focus, Thriving or Surviving. Now, the downturn, of course, has been tough for the majors. When oil prices started falling in 2014, many of them were already under pressure from investors to rein in capital spending and improve returns. But the slump in prices really forced them to re-examine strategy, to look at how and where they were spending money, and how they were running their businesses. They've all tried to maintain dividends, they've all tried to cut costs and lower break-even prices, but some, of course, have done better than others. So to talk about these issues and assess how well the majors are doing, individually and as a group, I'm joined by three of my colleagues. In the US, from Energy Intelligence's Research Advisory Group, our Director of Industry Analysis, Monica Enfield, and one of our Senior Editors and Correspondents on the Corporate Beat, Paul Moroley. And with me here in London, our Senior Corporate Correspondent, John Mannering. Monica, Paul and John, welcome and thank you for joining us today. So Monica, if I can start with you. The downturn put pressure on the majors and their business models, and they largely responded to the retrenchment in similar ways in 2015 and 2016. So we saw divestments, capex cuts, cost savings, and borrowing to pay the dividend. But with prices now stabilizing around the $50 per barrel mark, are we seeing any divergence in the major strategy this year? Uh, thanks, Jim. Yes, I, I think we are seeing some divergence to a degree as the majors position for the next upturn in the cycle especially with uh, regard to upstream growth options and integration strategies. Um, but first, I think it is important to highlight some areas where the majors remain aligned in 2017, and that's capital budgets, selective M&A, and divestments. On CapEx, we see the majors outlining you know, continued cautious capital plans for 2017, essentially remaining flat with 2016 levels, although Shell and Exxon have shown some increases. And then with M&A, there continues to be selective bolt-on deal-making, especially deals that are structured to limit upfront capital outlays. Some, some examples include Exxon's $6.6 billion deal earlier this year in the Permian, as well as BP's deals in Abu Dhabi, offshore Egypt, and Senegal. And then finally, the majors are continuing with the divestment programs this year to close funding gaps. Obviously, Shell's uh, $30 billion target is the largest program, and it's recently concluded deals to sell assets in the Canadian oil sands, North Sea, Gulf of Mexico, and elsewhere. Chevron also recently indicated that it may sell up to $7 billion in assets this year. So where are they diverging? I think the key difference is positioning for the next upturn in the cycle, but not merely calling on the same playbook for growth that the majors may have done in the past. On one extreme, you have Chevron, which is not really expected to sanction any new projects in 2017, but rather choosing to selectively manage fewer major mega projects moving forward. On the other, you have Total, which indicated it's considering up to 10 projects for approval in the next 18 months. And this is on top of its already currently sanctioned project queue. 
Their strategy is not only a mix of high return deep water projects in its core traditional areas like Africa, but also long life, low return, um, sorry, low decline assets in the Middle East. And in between the two, all the majors appear ready to move ahead with short cycle projects, such as U.S. shale or fast track developments in the offshore. Um, for example, Exxon plans to dedicate more than a third of its upstream uh, capital program to shale and conventional short cycle programs, largely focused in the Permian and the Bakken. Um, but beyond the upstream, we're also seeing that the majors are seeking to differentiate their integrated gas and their integrated downstream petrochemical strategies, each with the intent to demonstrate value to shareholders. Um, the majors have already overhauled their downstream segments earlier this year, uh, earlier this decade, sorry, and improved in performance here helped offset losses in the upstream segment in 2015 and 2016. We really see ExxonMobil at the head of the pack here. It's implementing a $20 billion investment program in the U.S. Gulf Coast to expand refining, processing, and pet chem production capacity. It's had this long-standing goal of maximizing integration and focusing now on higher-value products such as lubricant and ultra-low uh, sulfur diesel. We also see Shell, Total, and Chevron also pursuing pet chem and higher-value product investments in Asia, Middle East, Europe, and the U.S. Gulf Coast. Okay. So we're seeing, as you say, some sort of um, divergence in the major strategies. We've got prices now back above $50 a barrel and a little more confidence around, it, around in the industry. So which of the majors now do you think look best place to prosper? Okay. Well, so far with 2016 year on reporting, the, the super majors are continuing to struggle with rebalancing their cash flows and narrowing the wide funding gaps. Lower, lower oil prices last year, of course, weighed heavily on revenues, and cash flow generation fell short in many cases. Over the past two years, companies have run down with cash reserves and increased borrowing to meet funding requirements. Um, of the majors, Shell, BP, and Chevron were the worst performers, uh, with net operating cash covering barely half of major cash flow out, cash flows uh, last year, outflows, sorry, last year. Uh, 2017 will be challenging, uh, despite the cautious revival that we're anticipating. In terms of who will prosper, I think there's two important angles. Uh, how much balance sheet strength do the majors still have and their degree of financial flexibility? Um, first on balance sheet, if we were to look at gearing ratio as a key metric, Shell went from the best to the worst position after the BG acquisition, and its gearing is over 40%. Uh, the $30 billion divestment program is critical to bringing its finances back into order, but this may limit its ability to make large investments and large acquisitions at this stage in the cycle. Uh, BP's gearing has also worsened in the past three years, even though it has made strides in cutting costs and conserving capital. Unfortunately, um, while its financial liabilities related to Macondo continue to taper off, it still does have a significant payment this year. Uh, the second angle is cash flows, and Chevron, by all accounts, is doing the worst on this metric, um, but it may have cleared some of the operational hurdles that impacted its performance in 2016. ExxonMobil, Total, and Shell, they showed the strongest signs of recovery and cash generation from their fourth quarter results, so this is encouraging. Um, so we'll be looking to see if companies have sufficiently cut their OPEX, reduced CapEx, and rebalanced their businesses enough to actually generate free cash flow this year. And critically, that the majors are not reliant on more borrowing in this $50 a barrel oil price environment. 
Okay, I mean, that leads nicely actually into the next thing I wanted to um, bring up, which is this, this question of, that's come up a lot during the downturn, costs. Can the majors get costs under control and make money at lower prices? And many of them are claiming they've done so, but Paul, if I can ask you, do you think that's right? Have they got costs under control? Have they really lowered break-even prices? I would say that they have made significant progress reducing operating costs, but you know, as Monica mentioned, it, it's up for debate whether they've done enough to reduce their break-evens to the extent that they can cover their capital spending and dividend payments with operating cash flow moving forward in a low-price environment. Um, the downstream refining and, and petrochemicals have, have been doing the heavy lifting for overall cash flows and earnings. And there's definitely more work to be done in the upstream, and that work continues. Uh, that means slashing operating expenses wherever possible. We've seen job cuts, seizing on lower supply chain expenses, you know, generally changing the way they do business across the board. And you can see the fruits of the labor in the fourth quarter results, which were, were generally weak, but they demonstrated some improvement in, in cash flow generation for some of the majors when prices still weren't great. Um, Brent averaged 49 bucks in the fourth quarter, up 13% from about 44 in the fourth quarter of 2015. But we also saw significant deterioration in gas prices in most markets year to year. Global refining margins slightly lower if we go by Exxon's figures. So it, it's, it's a good quarter, the fourth quarter, to examine progress on, on cost cutting and, and cash generation. And what we see if we look at the big five majors, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP, and Total, is that operating cash flow for that group increased by 20% to about $30 billion from the fourth quarter of 2015. Uh, it was pretty much Exxon, Shell, and Total carrying the way with uh, Chevron and BP posting declines in operating and cash flow in the fourth quarter. You compare that to full year 2016 when cash flow from operations for that same group dropped 30% on average, and you can see that some progress was made as the year progressed. Um, on the upst upstream side alone, you can see progress, progress in the net profits reported. Exxon reported adjusted upstream earnings of $1.4 billion in the fourth quarter. That was up 64%. Totals were up 51% at $1.1 billion. Shell, Chevron, BP all posted positive upstream earnings after reporting big losses in the fourth quarter of 2015. So yes, they're, they're, they're making progress with cost cutting and adapting to low prices. If you annualize the fourth quarter performance and assume improved pricing in 2017, you start to feel better about the majors than you did a year or two ago. The question is, will these improvements in operating costs and capital efficiency be enough in the near future to cover the capex and dividends, and I think that's that's the key question, as Monica mentioned, um, for the entire group in 2017. All of them have stated targets to break even at prices between 40 and 60 dollars in the near term, but those targets aren't all apples to apples, and can include, for instance, proceeds from asset sales or the inclusion of the script compo component for the Europeans' dividends. Uh, as I said before, there's more work to be done. Um, Exxon, which is historically the profitability leader of the group, had cash flow shortfalls of $7.3 billion in 2015 and $9.1 billion in 2016. So we'll see what happens this year, but, but the group must be nervous about the recent dip in crude prices and the ramp up in shale activity. Okay, thanks, Paul. 
Um, now, if we expect the majors to start using this, you know, lower cost base they claim and greater confidence overall prices to start sanctioning projects, where are they going to start investing? So if I can ask you, John, do we expect, for example, to see investment going into the offshore and the deep water or do costs there still need to come down a bit more? Um, well, Jim, I'd say that costs, um, are, as Paul was just saying, uh, are already coming down. Um, in the offshore area, the, the obvious um, um, example of this is Mad Dog Phase 2, where BP had, a, you know, had originally planned um, to develop that for $20 billion, and they've got the cost, well, they've more than halved the cost to uh, $9 billion. Um, if you look at some analysis that Wood Mackenzie did recently in the North Sea, they found that on the UK side of the North Sea, um, OPEX per barrel has fallen 40% since uh, late 2014, while in the Norwegian uh, sector, it's fallen 30%. And, and they're saying that even upfront development capex has, has also fallen by about a quarter. Now, part of that is because of pressure customer pressure on the supply chain. Uh, but it's also mainly because companies are going back, looking at these projects and redesigning them, uh, you know, with, with, with the purpose of reducing costs in mind. So if they can keep that up and if oil remains above $50 per barrel, I don't see um, uh, any reason why uh, further upstream projects shouldn't get FID'd over the next couple of years. Um, uh, as Monica was saying, Total has targeted um, 10 FIDs over the next 18 months. These include two uh, deep water offshore projects in uh, Brazil. Um, Exxon recently confirmed um, that it expects to green light the first phase of its LISA development in Guyana. Uh, that's offshore Guyana. Um, and BP uh, recently released a list of its next wave of potential FIDs, and these include uh, Claire South in the North Sea um, and, and Phase 3 of its Atlantis deep water development in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be positive about, and if they can keep up this cost reduction, then, yeah, certainly we, we could see, you know, a few dozen FIDs over the next couple of years. Okay, thanks, John. Um, Paul, just... To turn to you again, what about shale? How does that fit into the majors' portfolios going forward? Yeah, I think it fits in differently for each company depending on their position in shale. Uh, you see Exxon, Chevron, and to a lesser extent Shell promoting what shale, particularly the Permian, can do for their portfolios at, at every turn these days. Uh, we, we heard the term Permania at Zero Week last week, and, and I think these majors clearly have it. Uh, for those with strong positions, I, th I think shale investments are attractive right now because they're short cycle and low cost. You aren't committing massive amounts of capital over long periods of time. And I think that's appealing to investors who witness a lot of capital inefficiency or, or even outright destruction by the majors under $100 oil with mega projects in prior years. Uh, it's natural that the U.S. majors are strongest uh, with, with their shale positions. Exxon and Chevron have big plans for, for shale oil assets. Um, Monica mentioned the, the recent acquisition that Exxon made. And Exxon now believes that U.S. shale could assume up to 25% of the company's entire liquid portfolio over time. 
At the company's strategy presentation in New York earlier this month, new Exxon CEO Darren Wood said the company's production from the Permian and Bakken oil plays could alone top 750,000 BOE per day in 2025, up from below 200,000 BOE per day last year. That's significant for a company that struggled with reserve replacement the last two years and whose global output has basically been stuck around 4 million BOE per day since the mobile merger in 1999. A similar story at Chevron. Um, 2 million net acres in the Permian, including 85% with no or low royalty rates, about 9.3 billion BOE in resource potential. Chevron sees a lot of future upside in, in, in its uh, shale position with over 700,000 BOE per day in production within a decade and free cash flow generation by 2020 at $50 oil and, and 250 gas. So you can see how that's attractive. On the other side, you have Total and BP who are looking at U.S. shale and saying, hey, you know, the cost of entry is way too high and this is not for us. They look at the valuations for the assets that are moving in M&A markets in the U.S. onshore and they see better opportunities elsewhere. If you're late to the game, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, BP sees better shale opportunities in Argentina's Vaca Muerta than in the Permian due to the cost of entry issues. Total's the same way. In fact, Total CEO has been very outspoken about U.S. shale. He's, he's run the numbers on it and said flatly that it's too expensive for the company. He won't buy assets he thinks are valued at $80 per barrel in this market. Instead, Total went out recently and bought $2.2 billion in offshore assets from Petrobras in Brazil. It's, it's, it's a market Total understands better, and it sees higher returns from it ultimately down the road. But, you know, all, all of the majors agree that shale can't carry their portfolios. It can be an important piece of it, but it can't carry it in terms of reserve replacement and sustaining or growing production volumes. There's got to be a balance of long cycle, bigger projects in deep water, conventional, international, oil sands, whatever, to, to make the business model work. And, you know, the, the dark side of U.S. shale is, of course, natural gas. A lot of this oil acreage, shale oil acreage, can produce significant amounts of natural gas where prices have been perpetually depressed. That can hamper returns. Just look at Exxon's U.S. upstream. It hasn't turned a profit since the fourth quarter of 2014 because it's getting killed by being the U.S. largest gas producer. It's gotten so bad that the company took its first write-down in decades last quarter to account for unprofitable gas assets in the Rocky Mountains that it acquired when it bought XTO in 2010. Okay, thanks, Paul. We'll, we'll come back to gas more broadly, I think, in a minute. But I think at this point it may be good to see uh, if we have any questions coming in from our audience. And at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchstone phone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchstone phone. We'll pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, thank you. Um, while we're waiting, let's um, go back, as I said, to gas. Um, a lot of the majors, particularly in Europe, have been talking up gas as a transition fuel on the path to a lower carbon economy. Shell, of course, has bet big on gas with the BG deal. But there has been precious little in the way of, for example, new LNG investment uh, by the majors. So, Monica, if I can ask you, how would you characterize the majors' strategy towards gas? Okay. Thanks, Jim. I, I think this is an important question. 
The majors have, of course, been the leaders in the LNG space, and the retrenchment obviously has meant a slowing of Greenfield LNG mega projects. Um, but the slowing investment really hasn't changed the super majors' general outlook on an LNG supply gap over the next decade, and you know, this gap is exacerbated by slowing capacity investments. In fact, you could argue that the retrenchment has really done the majors a favor. The companies can afford to wait, not just for positive cash flows, but for buyer interest to return when, when markets tighten. It's also giving them time to retool some you know, otherwise uncompetitive ventures. But I would argue that investment in gas overall really hasn't, hasn't slowed. In fact, it's picked up. Even if companies aren't focused exclusively on reaching FID on LNG major projects, the recent investments that we're seeing are positioning the majors to supply domestic uh, market growth for LNG exports or both. And really, this is helping the peer group as a whole retain its top position in what we call, you know, quote unquote, gas portfolio player strategies. So, for example, BP's recent farming uh, to the Senegal and Mauritania discoveries, it positions the company for a liquefaction venture to start up sometime in the next decade. The company's farming to Zor in Egypt gives it greater access to growing Egyptian, the growing Egyptian market in the short term. And FID on Tengu Train 3 last year will serve the growing Indonesian market. ExxonMobil's massive uh, investment last week in Mozambique Area 4 will help the company grow its longer-term LNG footprint. Exploration in Cyprus could add another possible hub. And, of course, the company is hoping to expand its competitive Papua New Guinea LNG venture. Total recently invested in Tellurian, which is planning the large driftwood LNG venture in the U.S. Gulf Coast. It's actively seeking entry into the Iran LNG venture through South Pars uh, Phase 11. And it's also keen to monetize its elk antelope assets in Papua New Guinea, which would be part of an expansion you know, led by ExxonMobil. Now, of course, Shell, um, it acquired BG, and it's not immediately pushing for new liquefaction ventures, but it's now looking to optimize what it has. Um, it, just because it's not pursuing FIDs right now doesn't mean that it doesn't have access to new volumes. It inherited BG's Sabine Pass volumes and is set to take the entire 2.5 MMPTA from Elba LNG when that starts up and has many other options. Um, so like I mentioned, this is something we're currently working on in the Business and Competitive Intelligence Service, and this is going to be the focus of our quarterly uh, coming out the first week of April. We'll be benchmarking the majors along with other key gas players in terms of LNG portfolio player strategies with Shell, Total, BP, and E&I as the leaders, and Exxon and uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron following behind. Okay, thanks, Monica. Um, we should also consider, I think, um, what investors are looking for from the majors. Um, maybe a question for you, Paul. Um, they've been mesmerised by Shell over the past few years. They've been rather unhappy with the majors' perceived lack of capital discipline. So what do you think they're looking for now for the majors, and can the majors deliver? Yeah, I, I think with investors, you're right. They're, they're not looking at um, the majors for, for growth. What they're looking at the majors for are dividends, uh, big ones, and, and the majors have been paying those out for years. They have um, multi-year streaks of, of increasing the, 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 the dividend on an annual basis, um, <clears throat> you know, I had an investment banker tell me last week that investors look at major oil stocks like they do electric utilities, keep paying steadily growing dividends, and, and all is well. 
So free cash flow is so important, and it just hasn't been there with these commodity prices. The majors, with the exception of Italy's E&I, have survived the past two years without cutting dividends, but that's come at a significant cost. They've been borrowing to pay the dividend. In fact, many were doing so even before the price crash of 2014 due to high capital commitments for mega projects. But now you have record debt continuing to rise amid low prices and credit ratings are deteriorating. Exxon lost its sterling AAA rating with, with S&P last year, for instance. How long can they sustain that model? It's, it's hard to say. How much stress do you want to put on the balance sheet? How much do you want to reduce investment? How many assets do you want to sell to keep the books balanced? Um, how, how much are you willing to dilute your shares using Scrip? How much are you willing to shrink or sacrifice vol- volumes to ensure the dividend is maintained or increased? These are tough questions the group is facing, and, and price volatility makes them more difficult to answer. Um, there's a lot of talk about value over volume by the majors, but there's only so much volume you can lose from underinvestment, asset sales, weak exploration, before it impacts the value you can deliver to shareholders. As a stat oil executive put it last week at Zero, we need volume to add value, so profitable investments are a must. There's, there's little margin for error at, at low prices, quite frankly. If the cash imbalances continue, the majors will have to look at the dividends eventually, which have been so sacred. Chevron paid $8 billion in dividends last year and generated $12.8 billion in operating cash flow. The dividend accounted for 62% of its operating cash flow. How sustainable is that? Uh, the majors think their lower cost structures and new approach to investing will deliver lower break-evens, but higher prices might be needed too. Okay, thanks, Paul. Um, let's just check at the moment if we have any questions coming in from our audience. And once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star in one. Okay. Um, now, Paul just mentioned CIRA, uh, which both he and I were at uh, last week in Houston. Um, and there was a lot of talk there about new ways the industry can improve efficiency and lower costs through standardization, automation, and in particular, digitalization, improving the ways they manipulate and use data. But the majors have been talking about this kind of stuff for the best part of a decade without it really taking hold in a truly transformational way. So, John, um, I wanted to ask you, why do you think that is, and are we approaching a tipping point where we could see real change in this area? Okay. Well, when it comes to standardization, there are companies that uh, have already taken a modular approach and use um, what are called fast-track field development uh, in order to you know, bring uh, more production online. Um, and uh, the company I'm thinking best of there is uh, Statoil. They've done a lot of good stuff on the Norwegian continental shelf. When it comes to digitalization, um, uh, this is an interesting one. There was recently a survey done by uh, Norwegian um, oil and gas consultancy, uh, DMV, which found that uh, um, of, of the people they, um, they, they surveyed, um, uh, most identified digitalization as the top emerging technology that the industry is going to invest in this year, um, which, which is uh, some kind of indicator. Um, and there are companies that are leading the way. Um, 
BP, for example, has been working with GE Oil and Gas, which is a proponent of uh, digitalization, to develop a, a digital system called Plant Operations Advisor, which they've installed on their Atlantis Deepwater Production Platform. Uh, this collects data and uses artificial intelligence to deliver notifications of maintenance issues before they become major problems. And um, uh, BP's upstream chief recently said that this system is going to be rolled out on all its uh, upstream facilities uh, uh, by the end of the year. So BP are moving ahead with this um, sort of thing. And the reason people want to do that is, is, is again, it comes back to cost. Uh, if you can take out uh, drillers, if you can take out uh, maintenance people, uh, from the upstream, you can save an awful lot of money. These people are expensive, requiring people to work offshore. Um, uh, it requires that you pay them a lot of money. Uh, of course, the holy grail is to have um, production platforms that are entirely unmanned. And uh, other than um, uh, you know a few examples, you know this isn't this is this isn't coming yet, and it might not happen for a long time, but. Uh, certainly, I think in the Dutch North Sea, there's a tiny little platform that Winterschau is uh, operating, uh, but that's uh, entirely unmanned. So um, if they can achieve this digitalization, they can drive costs down. The big problem is it means a change in the personnel because uh, um, somebody who is good at drilling, who is good at uh, equipment maintenance may not necessarily be the, the sort of person you need to um, crunch all the big data that's going to be coming off these platforms uh, that, that's to enable you to uh, run your operations more efficiently. So um, talking to GE Oil and Gas recently, I spoke to their head of HR. He said that they've been recruiting people from companies like Apple. Um, uh, to, I mean, they've, they've recruited a guy who is heading up their, um, their cloud uh, data operations, um, and, he, and he developed uh, Apple's uh, Siri uh, platform. Um, uh, they've also recruited a professor of astronomy who is a machine learning expert to, um, to help them with uh, their industrial Internet of Things. And you know, if, if you can have more sensors on platforms uh, and, and more equipment running things remotely, that saves money. Of course, um, at the moment, I think there was a McKinsey study a while back which identified that of all the sensors and equipment that are on a standard oil platform, only 1% uh, of that data is currently used. And if you can use more of it, you can make it more efficient. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's a long way to go here. Mm. With the, but the big, for me, the big bottleneck is where do you find the people who can bring this about? Okay, that's interesting. Um, I think with that, we are almost out of time. So um, it just reminds me for me to thank uh, everyone who's listened in and thank, of course, Monica, Paul and John for their thoughtful answers. Our next virtual roundtable takes place next month, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in April.